going to be in uh, the story, getting back to our story of scripture series, and if you haven't been with us these last few weeks, we're glad that you're here today, and we started a series a couple weeks ago called The Story of Scripture, and what we're doing is we're taking a moment just to really look at the Bible uh, from a, you know, 100,000 foot view. Uh, from way up and looking down and saying, okay, what is the big picture? It's kind of like when you're in the airplane and you look down, Pastor Marvin showed, you know, on the city of Boston, and you can see, oh, that's how it looks from up here, right? You get a big picture of how everything fits together. And so we're taking several weeks and just looking at what is the big picture of how all this kind of fits together. Because some of you have been sitting in church your entire life and don't necessarily know how this uh, book and how the Bible is put together and organized. And looking at it from a little bit of a higher, broader point of view can help us in that. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. Because most of the time we pick up this book and we say, we know how books work, right? You start at the beginning and that's how it starts. And then you read all the way to the end and that's how it ends. And it constantly is moving, progressing forward throughout the book. And kind of, when we come to the Bible, that's how it works. It does start at the beginning. In fact, the very first three words are in the beginning. And it does end at the end of how God says that this is how kind of time as we know it will end. But in between there, what we don't often realize is it's not always moving along chronologically. In fact, your Bible is not really organized so much chronologically as it is organized by genre. And we don't always realize that. So I do want you to take out your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible with you, grab one off the chair rack below you or right near you. And I'd like you to be looking at that. And I do want you um, to be able to have that in front of you. And just before we do, I'm going to put these numbers on the screen. And if you've been with us, you know what I'm about to do. If you haven't been with us, this is going to seem like the strangest thing you've ever seen in a church. And you're about going to get ready to run out the room. Um, but somebody give us a beat because I'm not good at a beat. So somebody give us a clapping beat. There we go. All right. Now we got it. I'm going to say the numbers. You're going to repeat after me. Ready? 512, 5512. 4121. 5125512. 4121111. Ah, we can stop. I told you I'm bad at a beat. I messed you up even with my cadence. Uh, but what does that mean? Because some of you are like, all right, you're new here today and you're like, let's get out of here. This is a cult. Um, <laughs> Hang with me for a minute. Let me explain what this is. Open up your Bible to the table of contents. Just as a reminder of what we are, open up your Bible, please, to the table of contents, which isn't what we usually do on a Sunday morning. Usually I'm asking you to go someplace else, but uh, open it up to the table of contents and I'll explain these numbers just real quick because it's important for us to get it. This is just how the Bible is organized. This is just one way to remember how the Bible is organized. So the first five is those first five books in your table of contents, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Those are the books of Moses. Those are also called the Torah, which means law. 
or they are sometimes called the Pentateuch, which just simply means five books. So those are the first five. That's how it's organized, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The next 12 are history. What are the first three that it starts with there? Joshua, Judges, Ruth, right? And then it goes all the first and seconds, right? And so you get 12 books there that are history. Now what we've said, and this is important, it's not just history like you read in a history book. It's also theology, and theology is the study of God. So this history teaches us about who God is. And you say, well, how does that happen? Well, let me give you this example. If you and I didn't know each other, and you didn't know anything about me, but someone told you, say, 10 stories about me and my children of how we interacted, would you learn something about me? Yes. You would, right? How, if, if, I, if someone told you 10 stories about maybe my kids and I went on vacation or maybe a story about how I got angry at my kids and then maybe a story about how I had to repent and apologize to my children. Like you would learn something about me even though you're just hearing history per se, right? And really the way we know anything about God is the way he interacts with his people. So when we read that history in these 12 books, and we, and we read, oh, that's how God interacts with his people. That's how we learn who God is. And so history is theology, and that's that 12. The next five are books of poetry and wisdom. So you look in your table of contents, and that would be Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Those are uh, their prayers, their songs, their poetry, their, their, their wisdom literature. Um, there's a lot of arts in there, like, like a lot of poetry and art in there. And so you are, uh, that's a genre that's in there. It's not necessarily moving the story chronologically forward. It's grouping those five books of poetry together. And we said this, these five, they go into this twelve. All of this is happening in the 12. So most of the poetry and uh, much of the Psalms are written by David who lived in here or written by Solomon who lived here. So it's not moving the story forward. It's telling you what's going on in there. The next five are called the major prophets and then the next 12 are the minor prophets. And those are all, again... The five major and the 12 minor, only called major and minor because the major ones are longer and the minor ones are shorter, all lived in here. So all of this takes place here. So when you get to Isaiah and you read about what's happening in Isaiah, he's, it's a prophet that is kind of telling what he was saying to the people of God during that time of history. So you might get, you get to this 5, 5, 12, and you actually get a long section that's not necessarily chronologically moving the story forward, but is telling you what's going on uh, and kind of giving a side note of what's going on in the midst of that. So the prophets, I'm not going to talk much about the prophets. You actually will not hear about the prophets next week here in Burlington. Um, I'll, I'll tell you this. If you do want to hear about the prophets, it's going to have to happen in one of two ways. You're going to go to Belmont next week, or you're going to uh, listen to Pastor Brian's sermon from Belmont after next Sunday about the prophets. Because in Burlington next week, we actually have a guest speaker, Pastor Bob Crosby, who pastored Mount Hope previous to me uh, about 15, 16 years ago. 
is going to be speaking here in Burlington, and I did not ask him to continue on in our series. I was, I was like, he asked me, he's like, do you want me to preach or anything? I'm like, I'm not going to put this on you. I'm not going to make you go up and clap five, five, twelve. Um, so he's going to be preaching on something completely different, um, but you will get to hear about the prophets uh, by listening online to Pastor Brian or going to Belmont next week and hearing Pastor Brian there if you want to do that. So that's the, next, that's the prophets. Four, this four is what? Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And here's where you get a good example. They're all the same genre. The Gospels are the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. But when you get to the end of Matthew and you start Mark, it doesn't continue on. It starts over, right? Because they're four genres grouped together. One is the book of Acts. It's another history and theology book that happens after the time of Jesus and in the time of the early church. 21 is you have 21 letters that are written to individuals or churches uh, that basically tell us what we believe and how we live. That's what the letters are. And then one is a book of prophecy uh, and uh, the book of Revelation. So when we clap these numbers, we're just trying to say, hey, let's just keep in mind, here's the big picture. Here's how your scriptures, here's how the Bible is organized, and that can be helpful as we're doing that. Uh, we've said, you know, one way to look at it is, it is uh, the story of scripture. It's 66 books of the Bible. There's thousands of chapters, but it's one story. Uh, we can put it this way. It's a story of God with us so that we can be with him. Another way to put it would be it's our need for a savior and God's provision of one. That's the story. Um, or another way to put it, I was reading this week in a book, and an author used these four words, and I thought these four words were helpful in describing uh, what the whole story of Scripture is. Ought, is, can, and will. Uh, this is how it ought to be. <laughs> this is how it is, right? How it ought to be back in the Garden of Eden before sin. God's like, this is how it ought to be. But this is how it is. <laughs> Life is broken Sin has entered in, things are a mess. This is how it can be. Jesus enters the story. God enters the story. He offers redemption and healing. And this is how it one day will be when God brings it all to conclusion. So, uh, you know, if you want to think about it with a story of scriptures telling, ought, is, can, will, I thought was a helpful way to look at it as well. So, we finished the first five last week. I don't know if you know that or not, but we did. Uh, as much as we are going to get through them. We didn't tell you everything, but uh, we did two weeks. Uh, first week is on Genesis. We said Genesis uh, in the first three chapters answers the five biggest questions that every person, religion, and worldview has to answer. Questions of origin, value, purpose, pain, and hope. And Genesis answers those questions in the first three chapters. And then last week, Pastor Marvin talked to us about God's plan for restoring um, relationship with humanity. And there was an important word. What was the word we used last week to for that relationship? Covenant. That God is a covenant God. That God desires to enter into covenant relationship with us. And you can go back and listen to Pastor Marvin if you missed it last week of what that means. I do think it's important to understand, we use this kind of comfortable, 
conversational language with God, that like we have this personal relationship with God and God is my friend and yes and yes. But if you read the Bible, God's not necessarily interested in a personal relationship with you as much as he's interested in a covenant relationship with you. And there are some, that can be very personal, but there are some differences there. There's, there's, there's some formality there. There's, there's the holiness of God. There's the law and the love of God that are contained in a covenant relationship. And so um, covenant, we're going to continue on that theme of covenant today. Um, but so Pastor Marvin talked about the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and then the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant, the covenant God made with Moses, is essentially the entire what we would call the Old Testament. Basically, all of this is lived under the Mosaic covenant. All of that is people living under the Mosaic covenant, under God's covenant with his people. Um, we could call it the older covenant. In fact, someone this week I was talking to said that, said one way to look at it is call this the older covenant, and the covenant we live under is the newer covenant, uh, because it is God progressively revealing himself through covenant relationship. But the entirety of this is lived under really the Mosaic and the older covenant, and then with Jesus, and we're going to get to in a few weeks, we enter into what we call the new or the newer covenant. So this week we're starting right here. We're entering into the 12, uh, um, and we're entering into that history and slash theology part. Uh, I'm going to, the first three books of that history part are what? You've already said them? Joshua, Judges, Ruth. I'm going to spend like three minutes on Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And then we're going to jump in a little past that. But let me just tell you what's going on in Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Joshua, it's really simple. I can put, I can put it pretty much in one word. It's called the land. It's called the land, all right? Um, the book of Joshua begins like this, after the death of Moses. So the first five was all about Moses. Moses dies. Joshua begins after the death of Moses. God rose up a leader, and his name was Joshua. When God made a covenant with Abraham, he said, I'll promise to make you a great people. I'll give you a land, and I'll make you a blessing to the entire world. At this point, at the beginning of Joshua, they are a great people. They're over a million people. They've left Egypt. So there are people without a land. It's never happened really in history that you would have a people wandering around. They have an ethnic connection. They have a law, but they have no country. They have no land. And so God is bringing them into a land. And actually, that's what Joshua is all about. The entirety of the book of Joshua is about God bringing them into a land that would be their own. So by the end of Joshua, they're actually in a land that is their own. And then it begins the period of the judges. And what do judges do? Judges judge. <laughs> judges, that's, all, that's what they do. So the period of the judges is God putting people over as people who would make judgments, who would decide things that need to be decided, who would lead them. But judges are not kings. They're judges. Their king is the Lord, is God. But he puts judges in place. Uh, we did a series on the book of Judges a couple years ago. I'd encourage you if, you, if you weren't here, go back and listen to at least one message. Because all you have to hear is one message to understand the cycle that was going on in Judges. 
And in the book of Judges, the cycle that goes on is people, you know, they abandon God. God sends consequences. They say, God, please deliver us from these consequences. God raises up a judge. The judge rules and gives them deliverance for a while. They're grateful. The judge dies. They abandon God. And the cycle goes on and on through the book of Judges. And we learn something about God and about people throughout that. But God, that's what happened in Judges. The way the book of Judges ends, or, or actually, let me tell you how it begins. It begins with a statement like this. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Who's that generation? That's Joshua's generation. Died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Just a pause here before we move on to the book of Judges on the importance of passing on the faith to the next generation. I don't think we should skip past that verse too quickly. Um, One of the reasons you see what happened in Judges, it seems to be right at the beginning, we're told, is because one generation failed to pass on the message and the ways of God to the next generation. The book of Judges ends with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so there's the book of Judges. What we have at the end of Judges is a little bit of a prelude, a little bit of a foreshadowing that there's a king coming. That there is a king coming. And the book of Ruth, which is the next book, which I'd love to spend a lot more time on, but the book of Ruth is four chapters that really lead into the king, the time of the kings. So turn to the book of Ruth. Open your Bible, turn to the book of Ruth real quick, because I want you to see how the book of Ruth starts. It's four short chapters. And if you turn to the book of Ruth on page 222 of your chair rack Bible, if you're using it, and it starts like this. In the days when the judges ruled. So it's just a snippet of what's happening in the time of the judges. It's saying here's the story of one family in the time of the judges. It's the story of Naomi and Elimelech and Ruth and her husband. And it's the story of what's going on in the time of the judges. And it gives this short four-chapter little story of what's going on in the life of this family. And you say, well, why are we given this story of this family and not stories of all the other families that are going on? Because at the end of the book of Ruth, flip over two pages, the end of chapter four, the end of the book of Ruth, it ends with these words. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, not interesting yet until now. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And that's how the book of Ruth ends. It ends with the name David, because this is the transition from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. And so you go from Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and now in the first and seconds, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, you start entering the time of the kings. And we're going to spend a little bit of time there and most of our time for the rest of the morning just on one particular king that I want us to focus on 
this morning. Uh, you can break the time of the kings up into two different ways. And if you were here a month or so ago when I gave out these timelines, uh, it's a great depiction of two different kind times of the kings. Um, and if you weren't here and you want this timeline, you can go on Amazon and get it or wherever you get your timelines. I'm sure you can go and get this timeline. Um, Casket Empty is the website. But what you can see here is in the beginning, this line is just one line of kings. And then it splits into two lines. That's what I want you to see. Because when you get into the books of First and Second Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, it gets confusing really quick. Um, and so just keep this in mind. There were three kings that ruled over the nation of Israel together. And then the nation splits. And there's a northern nation of Israel and a southern nation of Judah. So you'll start reading through and they'll say, when so-and-so was king in Israel and so-and-so was king in Judah. And there's two kings all the time because the nation has split. Uh, and so you have a bunch of kings that ruled over a split nation. The northern kings, there really weren't any good ones. The southern kings, there were a couple good ones. Um, but there wasn't a lot of good going on during that time. But before the split, there were only three men that ruled over the United Nation. You know their names? Saul, David, Saul. Saul, David, and Solomon. So those are, the, those are, in a sense, the big three, because they're the only three that ruled over the nation before it split. Saul, David, and Solomon. Saul was kind of the people's pick for king. The people wanted a king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, 4 through 7, it says this, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. Samuel was the last judge. He was a priest. It was coming to the end of that time of the judges. And they said to him, behold, you are old, which is a great way to start a conversation. <laughs> behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us. Say these next words with me. Like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. This is the transition from the judges to the kings. The people say, we want a king like other nations. We don't want to be different anymore. We're tired of being different. And I don't think we should rush past this point too quickly, because before we're too hard on Israel, <laughs> we sometimes certainly are pressured by the same temptation. Those of us who follow Jesus in a world that does not are often subject to the same temptation to say, we want to be like other nations. We want to be like other people. Because if you are called and you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to be, the Bible says, peculiar. You're called to be holy. You're called to be different. And often that takes effort energy and is uncomfortable and sometimes you might feel like the Israelites you know what can't we just be like everyone else around us can we just not stick out so much can we just God can we can I just and this is kind of what the Israelites were doing because when they didn't have a king well someone would go to battle with Israel and they would say well who's their king we don't have a king 
well, who's, who's their king? Somebody's got to lead them. And the answer would be, well, they say God's their king. God is their king? Well, who's this God? And it all leads to God getting the glory and pointing to God in their life. And God's the one who leads them. But they say, no, 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 no. We want a king. We, we want a human king. We want to be like other nations. Who's their king? David's their king. Saul's their king. We want to be like other nations. Samuel said, you don't want this. King's going to tax you. He's going to take your sons, send to war. He's going to do all this stuff. But in chapter 8, verse 19, he says, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. And then our king may judge us and go before us and fight our battles. So God gave them what he wanted. God said God gave them what they wanted. He gave them a king because they had asked for it, even though he was to be their king. So Saul was the first one. And he was kind of the king that the people wanted. He literally is described as being head and shoulders above the rest. He's tall. He's kingly looking. If you saw a group of people, you'd say that one's the king. That's who Saul was. And he started out okay. He started out pretty good, actually. It didn't take long for him to go downhill fast. He abandoned the ways of God and do things the way he wanted to do them. And he didn't finish well. And then there was, uh, let's skip over David for a second. Solomon, he became a king the way most people become kings. His dad was king. And David was his father. And so he became king because David was king. There wasn't, um, Solomon started out okay too. Started out pretty good, but didn't finish well. And in fact, right after Solomon, that's how the kingdom becomes divided. But David is different. David isn't the people's choice for king. And he doesn't become king because his father was king. David is God's choice to be king. He's the only one that God himself chose for this moment. And in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, it says this. Samuel goes to Jesse's house. That's David's father. Jesse parades all his sons in front of the prophet Samuel. When they came and looked on Eliab, which was another David's brothers, and thought, Samuel thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But here's what the Lord said to Samuel. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord chooses leaders differently than we do, doesn't he? We look at what we can see on the outside. Maybe you would say, well, I'm not so shallow as I was look at someone's physical appearance and choose to follow them, although we do. Trust me, we do. Hollywood and Madison Avenue knows we do. But we look at, well, what kind of education do they have? What schools did they go to? How many followers do they have? How much money do they have? All these outward things. God says, I don't look at those things. When I choose a leader, I look at their heart. When you're choosing who you are going to follow in life, whether it be just in your personal life or in a larger context, it's, 
important, I think, to learn this lesson, not to look at the outward appearance. God looks at their heart, and we ought to as well. The Lord chooses leaders differently than we would choose. So he picks David because he is a man, the Bible says, after his own heart. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute, what that looks like. But first of all, let's talk about David. David is often remembered for the things that he did. Now, some of you may be new to church, and you don't know David from any other David you know, and that's okay. But some of you have been here a while, and so you know when I say the word David, something comes to mind. Some of the things that David did. Tell me some of the things David did. Goliath. I heard Goliath. What did he do with Goliath, right? He slayed Goliath. Even if you're not a churchgoer, you probably know the story of David and Goliath. Maybe you've at least read Malcolm Gladwell's book, right? You know, who, you know David and Goliath. So he slayed Goliath. What else did David do? Uh, Bathsheba. That one kind of comes up, right? Yeah. David is known for the things that David did, yeah? What else? What was that? Brought the ark. He brought the ark back. The ark, which is the presence of God or the place that God dwells. He brought the ark back, ark back to Jerusalem. Yep. What else? He, he Sheep. Did I hear sheep? He protected sheep. Yeah. He was a shepherd. And I'm going to include, oh, I always forget this. Is it E-R-D or E-A-R-D? E-R-D. All right. I need my little red squiggly line from Microsoft there. Um, I'm going to put in shepherd, I'm going to put this story too, right? The bear and the lion, right? When he was protecting the sheep, he had to kill a bear and a lion to protect the sheep, right? What else? Anything else you can think of that David did? He was a musician. He wrote psalms. Yep, that's true. Yep, he wrote a lot of poetry. He was an artist. I mean, that's kind of cool. If those of you who are artists, David wrote poetry. What's that? He murdered, yes, yes. Up at Bathsheba, he murdered Bathsheba's husband. Yes, what else? He had the blueprint for the temple. Yeah, he didn't build it, but he had a, he had a blueprint for the temple given to him, okay? Anyone remember this guy's name with David? His name, kind of a funny name, Mephibosheth. Right? Mephibosheth was a son, grandson of Saul, um, and which was the previous king, and he showed kindness and grace to Mephibosheth. How about the fact that he spared Saul's life? You remember that? He spared Saul's life more than once. When he clearly had the opportunity to take Saul's life, he spared Saul's life and said he would not do that. David is often remembered for the things that he did, for the things that he did. And, th and those are important, and those are, and we're going to come back to some of those in just a moment. But here's what's interesting about all these things we listed. We listed a lot of significant moments in David's life. I would argue, and I think I'd be on solid ground to say we did not list the most significant moment in David's life. And David is often remembered for what he did, but David is ultimately remembered for what God does through him. And uh, what God does through him is so much more than what actually these things are that we remember that David did. And that brings us to the next 
covenant, and it's called the Davidic covenant, or the covenant that God makes with David, and it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 with me, because I would argue that, in fact, I don't even think that's an argument. Hands down, what God does in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is more important than any of these things, and yet we don't often think of it when it comes to David. These are the things we think of when it comes to David. The most significant moment in David's life is what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God makes a covenant with David. And here's what's going on. What's happening in 2 Samuel chapter 6 is somebody said the ark coming back. So David had just brought the ark, which contains the presence of God, back into Jerusalem. And he danced and it was a celebration and it's a little bit of a kind of a, now the party's over, but, um, you know, it's kind of a break. David's still pretty excited. And so here's his idea. I have this great palace I live in. I have beautiful rooms, beautiful house. The ark is in a tent, large blankets, literally a tent. That's where the ark is. I'm going to build the ark the presence of God, I'm going to build God a house. And so 2 Samuel chapter 7, here's where it picks up. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judge of my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Pause there for just a second. There's a play on words here. Um, it, it's in the Hebrew, but it also comes through in the English. In the Hebrew, the word for house is buy it. And David says, I'm going to make the word a buy it. But the word buy it has multiple meanings. It means a house like you live in or you might live in. But it also means a house like the house of Windsor, like a lineage. And so God uses this play on words and he says, you want to build me a house? I'm going to make you into a house, David. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to make you into a house. And he doesn't mean the house you live in. He means like the house of Windsor, that, that royal house. 
And then he says in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Scholars that I read this week said statements like this, this is the most crucial theological statement in all the Old Testament. Or the, another one said, the events portrayed in this section may rightly be understood as the flowering of the Torah prophecy, the climax of David's life. Another one said, the significance of the eternal covenant between the Lord and David for the New Testament writers cannot be overemphasized. And here's why this is the most significant moment in David's life. Because we're used to waiting for Jesus. We're used to talking about Jesus. This is the first time that anyone ever knows, really, that there's going to be one that they're going to be waiting for, a king that they're going to be waiting for. So back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I said there's a kernel of a prophecy that's given. I said two weeks ago that there's a seed that's coming, but that's all it said. Now what's said is this seed is going to come through the line of David. And so now from this point forward, everyone's going to be waiting for that promised one. Everyone's going to be waiting for that king. Everyone's going to be waiting for that Messiah. So verses that you take for granted, like every Christmas when it says, you know, um, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. And we say, well, we know that's talking about Jesus. If it wasn't for the Davidic covenant, that's all David's covenant. All that's pointing back to is this is going to be someone is coming from the line of David. In fact, the, in that scripture it says, uh, of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom is where he'll sit. So all these prophecies about the Messiah really go back to David and his significance. So that when you read in Luke chapter 1, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and to his kingdom there will be no end. So all of it is pointing to this idea that there's going to be a son of David that comes. And what's interesting in this prophecy is there's a couple things at work. One, it says, God, this is going to be, God says, this is going to be my son, but it's also going to be the son of David. And for hundreds of years, people are like, how is that possible? And until Jesus comes born of a virgin, no one knew how that was going to be possible. But when Jesus comes born of Mary, a virgin, then he is the son of God and the son of David at the same time coming through Mary's line. And suddenly the prophecy comes to be. And this Davidic prophecy, in the end of the story, at the end of the book, the last chapter of the Bible, Jesus says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. 
I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So the only person that God ever picks to be king is significant because this is the one that God says, I am going to bring a perfect king through his line. Because David's not a perfect king. David messes up big time here. He's not a perfect king. But God says, he's a man after my heart. And I'm going to bring the perfect king through his line that is going to be the king that reigns forever. And he will come through David. I want us to, as we wrap up this morning, I asked our worship team to come. Here's what I want us to get, get through David. David got this covenant from God, but he wasn't perfect. In fact, he commits adultery and murder. Those are both after 2 Samuel chapter 7. Those are after God gives the covenant. That's after God gives this big promise. And he's an adulterer and a murderer. But here's the thing. The most significant legacy of your life and of David's life will not be what you do for God, but what God does through you. And this is true for David. The most significant thing was not killing Goliath. It wasn't sparing Saul. It wasn't showing grace to Mephibosheth. The most significant thing of David's life was that God worked through him and brought this promise through him. And you know what, for your life, the most significant thing for your life might be what God does through you and not what you do for God. In fact, I would not say might, I would promise you that that's true. Because in the New Testament, we see this all the time, that God works through his, your weaknesses. God works through you, and when he is glorified, that's the most significant aspects of your life. And so David, the, one of the, I think, things that we learn about David and that we take with David is this. David's the only person in Scripture that I can think of that we're told why God chose him. Maybe I'm wrong, but we don't know why God chose Abraham. I don't know why Jesus chose Peter and Andrew and Judas. I don't know why he chose them. I don't know why God chose Paul. The only person I can think of really in Scripture that I can say this is why God chose him is David. And it says because he was a man after God's heart. And so he's one of the people that we can look at in Scripture and say that's what it looks like to be a person after God's heart. And you and I are supposed to be people who are after the heart of God. And so the reason David was after God's own heart is because it was never about David. When he killed the bear and the lion, it was God killed the bear and the lion. When he killed Goliath, it was God brought down Goliath. When he spared Saul, it was because I will not raise my hand against God's anointed. It was all about God. It was never about David. And for you and I, our heart after God, it's never going to be about us. It's never going to be about what we do for God. It's going to be what we allow God to do through us. So let me make one last transition and close on this aspect. I mentioned this about David's life. Bathsheba and the murder of 
Bathsheba's husband came after the covenant was made, after the promise was given. You and I that have chosen to follow Jesus, we've fallen into sin after we've chosen to follow Jesus at times. We've um, made commitments to follow God, but often not fulfilled them. We, like David, have failed, fallen short, sin. Maybe it's not adultery and murder. Maybe it is. I don't know. But I know God forgives when we come to him and ask for forgiveness. So I want to close this service on that note. I want to close this service. Yes, we're talking about the big picture of Scripture. And I hope you got a picture of that today. But I really felt led this morning to close this service in a very particular way. And that is on this aspect of David's heart, which is a heart of repentance. Because he committed adultery and he murdered. But when he was confronted, when it was brought to light, he confessed, fell upon God's grace and mercy and asked for forgiveness. In fact, that's what made him different than Saul. Because Saul, when he was confronted with his sin, rationalized it, said, oh, it wasn't me. Oh, I've got a reason for it. He never repented, never confessed, never turned back to God. David was a man after God's heart. Because when he's confronted with his sin, he says, God, I have committed sin against you. He writes Psalm 51 that says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. And he asks for forgiveness. So I want to close this service this way. I'm going to ask you to stand up, but I'm going to ask those who are... I've asked a few teams of people to be available up front with you today, and I'll ask for them to come up front. And here's two things. One is the altars are always open. And you can come, and you can repent, and you can kneel at the altar and say, you know, maybe there's a sin in your life that you have not repented of, and you need to, if you're going to be a person after the heart of David, you need to come forward and repent and say, God, forgive me, and receive the forgiveness of God. You can do that. You can do that any Sunday. You can do that all the time. We close services at Mount Hope all the time like that. And so you can do that this morning. But this morning, I've also wanted to make space for something a little different, and maybe um, maybe this is you, and maybe it's no one. I don't know. I just felt this week led to close service this way. That maybe you're here, and you need to confess your sin to a person. Confess it to God, I should say, while another person listens. One of the things it says in the Bible is confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. Some of you come from a Catholic background or another church background that has formal confessional, and you came out of that, and you thought, you start putting confessionals in the church, Pastor Rick? Is that what you're doing? Because I left the church of that. No, but I am saying this. Sometimes we throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> we may not have confessionals in the church, but I also cannot take out James 5.16 out of my Bible which says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. 
you don't have to confess them here in church to somebody, but you do have to confess them to somebody if we're going to follow Christ and follow Scripture. So I really felt compelled this week as thinking about David, thinking about his repentance, thinking about his interaction with Nathan, to say, you know what, let's leave some space at the end of service. And if you've got something that you need to just confess to God in front of someone else, so that, why, why do this? So that you can know that you're heard and loved. Every week, I have a phone call with a friend of mine, and, uh, and we confess our sins to one another. And we do this practice every week because that's my space for it. And I confess my sins to him, and he'll confess to me, and we'll pray for each other. And why is that significant? Here's why that's significant. Because I need to know that I am fully known by somebody and fully loved still. Because here's the lie the enemy will tell you. Don't you go up there this morning because they're going to know you're a sinner. They're going to know you sin. All these people standing here are going to know you're a sinner. Let me just give you some news. We already know you're a sinner. And I am too. But sometimes I need to be able to confess that to someone and just let them pray for me and know that I've been heard and I'm still loved. And here's what I believe. I believe there are some sins in your life that as long as you keep them hidden and you don't say them to anybody and you're trying to manage them in your own strength and you're trying to handle them in your own strength and you're trying to say, I'll figure it out, I'll fix it, I don't need to say it, that I just, I, I believe that you may not get freedom from that until you confess it to someone else. Because the Bible says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. It says, there's going to be healing that may not come until you confess your sin. And so, we don't probably often enough make space for this, but I'm making space for it now. And we're closing out our service this morning with it now. And so the team's going to sing a song. And there's teams of men and teams of women up here. I'm going to ask men to go with men and men, women to go to women. And if you've got something that you, you just want to say, you know what, I'm going to confess this to God and I want you to hear it and I want you to pray for me. These are confidential. They're not sharing it with anybody and they're not giving you advice or counsel. All they're going to do is pray with you and let you know that you are forgiven. Because when you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive them. Lord, lead us this morning as we respond to your word. Thank you for sending Jesus as the perfect king. And even though we follow them, him, we are so imperfect. And we fall and we miss the mark so often. And so, Lord, we need in those times to come and ask your forgiveness. And so lead us, help us to be bold and courageous. Help us not to miss a healing or a blessing or something that you want to do in our lives this morning because we get in the way. Help us to be like David who says it's not about us. It's never about us. It's about you and what you are doing in and through us. And so we give, us, give this time to you. Lead us as we respond now to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna sing.